Good morning. It is so good to uh, be with you this morning in person so I can see your faces. It's been a real pleasure over the last 18 months to be able to be one of the check-in people and to see those who came in. Uh, but in all honesty, it was really hard to tell who you were. That may be your, that you had masks on or not, but uh, I have appreciated to be able to be a part of that. When Rob asked me to be a part of this uh, sermon series, I was really thrilled because I love story. I love narrative. And as a result, not only do I love reading, but I also love movies or TV series. It's something that I really quite enjoy, uh, the cinema aspect of being able to see life played out on screen and to be able to share themes and ideas of what we as culture and society are wrestling with. And so as I begin to think, though, of what I would share on today, I begin to really struggle to kind of identify and pick out a series that I might be able to talk about. In fact, I initially thought maybe I would go with Heather's favorite of the current season, uh, Virgin River. Anybody else? Have you seen Virgin River? Anybody? Yeah, it's too romantic. It's not even a romantic comedy. I mean, it's like watching nonstop uh, Hallmark Christmas movies on the W Channel. It's great stories. Everybody's got something that they've broken, has broken them, or that they're trying to hide, or they're trying to run from. And it's a great story of community, but it really wasn't something that I kind of resonated with to be able to talk about. So I began to think, what would I want to share? And I kind of went to my favorite genre of TV, movie, or book, fantasy. Any other fantasy fans here? Oh, good, a few of you. So initially I thought maybe I'd talk about The Hobbit. But I mean, that's massive. You'd be here till like next week and I don't have time and you don't have time and no one wants to listen to me for that long. And then I thought maybe The Lord of the Rings. There are some deep, rich, great themes within The Lord of the Rings. But again, I thought, how do I get through that in about 22 minutes? It's not going to happen. And so then I thought maybe Stranger Things but I'm still waiting for the next release or the next uh, season. And I thought it'd be hard to really delve into the paranormal uh, on a Sunday morning without really knowing where the storyline's going. So instead, I chose what I think is going to become a great new classic. This series has now been watched by over 60 million people in North America. It's a going to be one that everyone will be talking about. Sweet Tooth. I'm just getting a little bit of reverb there. Sweet Tooth. Now, don't let the title or the cover cause you some disequilibrium. Sweet Tooth is the storyline centered on Gus, a young 10-year-old hybrid deer boy. Yes, that's right, a hybrid child. You see, what has gone on in this storyline is a post-apocalyptic event caused by a virus that has raged across the world that has led to what they refer to as the Great Crumble. Society has crumbled around them as this virus has taken hold, causing many people to die. They refer to getting the sickness. And in the midst of this, the hybrids have begun to be born. And people begin to ask this question, was the virus caused by these hybrids or did the virus cause these hybrids? When people begin to look and cast blame on why this experience is going on, you can imagine the chaos that ensues, particularly 
for the hybrids. For those who think that the hybrids have caused it, they're out to slay them. They're out to capture and to kill them. Some of them are out to capture them and to utilize them for experimentation, thinking that if we can dive into uh, what's gone on in their blood, their DNA, then they can extract that and protect people from the sickness. Ten-year-old Gus, also known as Sweet Tooth because of his penchant for syrup and refined sugar, the story follows him on his quest to find his mom. Separated at birth, he believes she lives in Colorado. And so he starts out across the wilderness to be able to find his mom. Along the way, there's some great things that happen to him. Some great themes begin to emerge out of this story. One is the individual who's with him there, Tommy. Tommy's a former pro football player who is turned hunter. Uh, not... Um, subsistence hunting, but a hunter of hybrids. But they meet together, and out of their two worlds, they come together, and Tommy becomes like a father figure uh, to Gus. And in that, we see glimpses of mentoring. We see glimpses of struggle to overcome hate. We see a great storyline of how people can care for one another. But then there's also the storyline of Gus looking for his mom. He goes to great lengths to try to find her, to discover her, to know who she is, where she is, to be reunited. And it brings back a theme for me of understanding the widow looking for the lost coin and how we should search for those who are lost, search for those who are precious to God. But there's also this animal army. The animal army is composed of teens who are fully human, not hybrid, but they have a desire to protect the hybrids from those who are hunting them. And they come and bond together out of a common interest with a common mission to protect until there's disagreement. And in the disagreement, they totally and utterly fall apart. Not unlike some churches that I see where in the midst of their mission, there's differences and disagreements. And instead of being able to unite through their differences, they collapse and fall apart. You can imagine there's themes of trauma and distrust and all kinds of ethical concerns that swirl around this context. But in the midst of it, the theme that comes through loud and clear, the key theme is how do we deal with those who are different than us? How do we deal with those who we see society marginalizing? For whatever reason, how do we deal and engage with them? Do we care for them? Do we protect them? Or do we pursue them? Now, this main theme is not new. And in fact, if you're thinking, was this written because of our current experience? Let me tell you, this book, this is a comic book series made into a TV series. The comic books were written in 2009. The production on this series began in 2018, long before you and I had heard the phrase COVID-19. But they've tapped into something that is historic in society. Racism and hatred, marginalization, fear, and persecution of those who are different. It's an old story. It's a story that we see in Egypt with Israel. It's a story we see when Rome conquered Europe. It's a story we see in colonial settlers duping people out of their land and captivating people for slavery. But it's not only a historic issue, 
it's a current issue for us too, isn't it? Whether division or marginalization or fear is based on skin color, nationality, language, economics, or religion, we see that lived out before us. If anything has taught us in the last 18 months, we have seen in grand pictures racism that still exists in North America. We see marginalizations of First Nations individuals and communities. And we see communities being fearful and frustrated and excluding based upon COVID-19, political decisions, health decisions. Our depravity, our brokenness, causes us to fear that which we are unfamiliar with. And when we bump up against those who are different than us, our internal reaction is to push away. That fear, though, quickly turns into hate, which quickly turns into actions of marginalization, persecution. When we think about this issue, this is not an issue that is unfamiliar to the New Testament church. In fact, we see in Scripture the church in the New Testament bumping up against issues along these lines over and over again. And I would identify three of those issues that the New Testament church bumps up against that we can learn from. There's the issue of social standing. There's the issue of gender roles. And there's the issue of ethnicity or origin. When we think about the social standing, I can't think of a better example than out of uh, Corinthians 11. In, in the church in Corinth, uh, Paul was writing a letter to address some inequities that he began to see in the life of the church. You see, the church in Corinth had some folks who were incredibly wealthy and some folks who were incredibly poor. And in the midst of their gathering together, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was a little bit different than how we will in a few minutes do that. They gathered for a feast. Everybody brought what they could to be able to celebrate together and to be able to have really a great party of remembering of what it was that God had done for them through Jesus Christ. But as they gathered, the scripture tells us, and Paul does this in such a sarcastic, biting way, he said, do you not have homes where you can eat and drink in? You see, the wealthy were getting there ahead of schedule. They had a leisurely life that they lived, and they could set their own timetable. And so when it came to the feast, they came early. But for those who were less fortunate than they were, they had tighter schedules. They worked longer hours. They had people that they were responsible to. And as a result, they came a little bit later. And intentionally, the meal was to be able to provide. It was a great way for the church to care for those who didn't have as much food at home. And yet what they saw happening was that the wealthy would come out of their leisure and they would consume all of the food. They would drink all of the wine. And Paul's biting sarcasm says, do you not have homes where you can eat and drink? Why would you make a mockery of what the Lord has set up? And economic differences caused friction in the church. A temptation to see that you didn't have to bother with those who were less fortunate. I can't even begin to imagine the frustration that those who came late 
and the food was gone, experienced. But not only is there the issue of social standing, but there's also the issue of gender roles. The church struggled not to pick up culture's uh, ideologies or the water of the, uh, the day, the food of the day in terms of gender roles. And we see in John 4, there's this great story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling. They've been sharing uh, healing. They've been teaching. And they're tired, and they're out in the countryside, and they're into Samaria. And as they go into Samaria, they come to the community well. And Jesus says, I'm going to stay here. You guys go into town, get some food. And while Jesus waits at the well, a Samaritan woman comes along. And we know from Scripture that she's not necessarily uh, a nice lady. You know, you with me? And as she comes to draw water, Jesus says to her, Hey, I'm thirsty. Would you give me a drink? And she stops and she looks at Jesus and she says, I am a Samaritan. I am a woman. Why on earth would you ask me for a drink? And then we see this gender role, this uh, male superiority leak out even when the deacons come back. And as the deacons come back, they encounter Jesus talking to this woman of, of bad reputation. And scripture says this, as if it's a big, big deal. They didn't even ask him why he was talking to her. And throughout the New Testament, we see the New Testament church struggle with gender rules, struggle with equality, struggle with understanding that uh, all are called by God to serve him and to know him. So we've got social standing and we've got gender rules. And then we've got ethnicity. One of the greatest illustrations of the church bumping up against the issue of ethnicity or of origin begins with Peter's vision in Acts 10. And if you know that story, the story is of God laying out in a vision to Peter the sheet with all of the foods on it that as good Jews, they weren't allowed to eat. And God said to him, get up and eat, giving him permission and calling him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And so he does that. And a little later on in Acts, he goes back to the church in Jerusalem to give them an update of what's been going on. And the first thing that seems to come from the church leaders in Jerusalem is what on earth were you doing eating with Gentiles? What on earth were you doing eating food that wasn't blessed or by Jewish kosher law? What on earth were you doing? What were you thinking? Later on in Galatians, uh, Paul talks about the fact that uh, Peter had been to work with the Galatians before he was. And that is, Peter went to work with the Galatians who were non-Jewish people. Peter began to eat with them and gather in their homes and share with them at table. That was until uh, some representatives from the church in Jerusalem came again. And as they came, he stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Peter, or Paul, just is blown away by this. And it ends in a confrontation. And Paul says, even Barnabas, who was a good friend of Paul's, was caught up in this hypocrisy. 
ethnicity, causing tension and causing problems within the New Testament church, seeing some as special, seeing some as more blessed or more beneficial. And so Paul, in addressing this issue in Galatians 3.28, seeks to address this to the fellowship there and for you and for me as well. He writes this, beginning in verse 27 and going through to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. See, Paul encountered in this church that had felt the sting of prejudice People who were beginning to kind of live by law, not by grace. To live by code and to live by rules and regulations. To adopt food restrictions and food laws, cleansing laws, that the Israelite nation had picked up from Judaism. And Paul writes to them in a very passionate way to remind them that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is not male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He wrote and he said, when we see one another, for those of us who have clothed ourselves in Christ, when we look at others, we should not see ethnicity. We should not see economic parity. We should not see gender roles of restrictions But what we should see are sisters and brothers in Christ, equal in the eyes of God, equal in our call, equal in our capacity, equal in the work of the Holy Spirit, gifting us to be used for his ministry in his service. You see, the gospel calls you and I, cloaking ourselves with Christ, the gospel calls us to see each other equally and to see the beauty of the differences The gospel calls us to understand that we didn't earn our salvation. It is a gift of God. That we are unworthy in our gender. That we are unworthy in our economic standing. That we are unworthy in our nationality. The cross reminds us that relationships come with a cost. That some relationships are awkward, that some relationships we have to work at, at some relationships we have to release and let go of what we always think is right. To be able to work together in the body of Christ, we must continue to work at relationship and recognize that it costs, much like the cross cost Christ and our Father. In the empty tomb, reminds us that we can write a different story. The empty tomb should have been a story of defeat, should have been a story of loss. It should have been a story that ended the move of Jesus, but it didn't. A different story was written, and so can the church write a different story today. For far too long, church has been looked at as a place of segregation. It has been looked at as a place of privilege, 
It has been looked at as a place of male domination. We can write a different story. And why I love Rivercross, why I love this beautiful community is its pursuit and its passion to do just that in the body of Christ and to make a difference in our neighborhoods. You know, I wish that I could tell you that Sweet Tooth ends with a great come-to-Jesus revolutionary moment where the hybrids are embraced by society and seen as part of the solution, not the problem. But I'm not going to spoil it for you. But what I am going to say is that you and I can embrace the differences around us. See, if I give you a to-do list, this is what I would give you. The first is I would call us to humble ourselves. I would call us to realize that we have done nothing to earn the salvation. And when we can look at ourselves and be humble in that, we can begin to change how we view those around us. From whatever angle we may view of difference or polarization or marginalization, we can begin to understand that at the core essence, God calls us the same way. I had a seminary professor who used to just hammer at us to remember that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. That we all stand on equal footing, regardless of where we come, regardless of who our parents are, regardless of what our bank account says. We are equal before God. The second that is perhaps the hardest in this is to speak up. You and I are exposed to conversations every day where we see people marginalizing others because they're different than they are. And when we sit back and allow that to happen, we allow uh, perpetuation of racism, of stereotypes, of fear, of anger, and of arrogance. And I challenge myself as much on this as what I will with you. We need to be a people, the people of Christ, the people of church, to speak up when we hear uh, words of sexism, words of racism, words of anger towards those who have a different political perspective, words of criticizing of those who think differently in terms of a medical understanding of what's going on around us. We need to speak up, creating a place for freedom of speech. Our history is rooted in that. Our history as Baptists has a long history of seeking to be people of freedom of religion, to be people of freedom of thought. We need to be willing to stand in the, in the shadows and in the lights and protect those who are being marginalized. And the third is this, it's to embrace our differences. To be able to see our differences, whatever they may be, as a beautiful mosaic that God has drawn together for his purpose and for his goals, and for his intentions. Instead of seeing people as different and kind of saying, I'm not so sure I want to be a part of that, we should be looking at it and kind of say, what beautiful and glory and splendor there is when God draws people from different backgrounds, different uh, communities and cultures, and uses them to make a difference in the world that he has created. When I do a wedding, I give the bride and groom one challenge. And that challenge is to create a scandal. You know, we have all kinds of scandals that we can watch on news, or we can read 
uh, into Huntington Post or is that Huffington? Whatever. ETV. We see all kinds of scandals. But what I challenge them is to create a scandal of love. To create a scandal amongst their friends and their community and their family. That their actions to one another declare that they love one another. Without any question, without any doubt. And so that's my closing challenge to you. Is that if we commit ourselves to this to-do list. That if we seek to break down the walls and the stereotypes uh, of, of gender and of economics and of origin that we will begin to create a scandal in our families, that we will begin to create a scandal in our communities, in our neighborhoods of God's love, of God's grace, and of rewriting a story that draws other people into the narrative. So folks, let us write a new narrative and declare the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray. God, your Holy Spirit is so powerful in our lives. Use it to convict us to be people who are humble, recognizing that all that we have is because of you. God, use it to cause us to speak up. Make it so that we can't even keep our mouths shut. And God, lead us to make a difference as we embrace one another in a new way, in a fresh way in a grace way. Amen.